So the scripture that we just read is a reminder of God's fulfillment of his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And it's a covenant that consists of land, the land of Canaan. Um, it is a covenant that consists of a reminder that I've heard you. Because God tells them, I've heard your cry. And most importantly, maybe, it's, it's a covenant that God is present. God is going to be with them, but not alone. And so to, to paraphrase Sandra Richter, uh, who we've, been, we've used her quote uh, the last couple of weeks, God's people, God's place, dwelling in God's presence. Um, God's people and God's place, dwelling in God's presence. Jesus puts it like this, for where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. So, so last week, we saw that, meanwhile, God called Moses while he was in his exile. Okay, so Moses goes into exile because if you remember from last week, he kills an Egyptian. And obviously somebody posted that on social media, so he had to get out of town. I mean, that, that hit, and they were like, uh-oh, i got to get out of here. And uh, so while, though, while Moses is in exile, God called Moses. And then God spoke to Moses out of a burning bush. And, and what he speaks out of that burning bush is, humble yourself, Moses. Because the first thing he says is, take off your shoes. This is holy ground, son. This is holy ground. So he starts in the place of humility. Moses, the first thing I need from you if you're going to be a leader is to be humble. I need to take your shoes off. You're standing on my ground. I'm boss. Okay, so let's get that straight. And so Moses is like, got you. And so he takes off his Birkenstocks. And, uh, and, and God says, you know, Moses, take off your shoes, stay a while. Don't be in a hurry to leave. And, uh, and then God, after he speaks to Moses, and there's some debate between them, um, God sends Moses back to Egypt. So God calls, God speaks, and God sends. Please remember that. Because God's not just speaking to us. So we can get our kicks. Well, God spoke to me. That's awesome. God calls us and speaks to us in order to send us. And so the message that God gives to Moses Take back to Egypt. We want him to, to free his people from slavery, from bondage to Pharaoh. So as we bring this forward, we begin to see the pattern of how God operates. God calls, God speaks, and God sends. And God calls us, and then he speaks to us, and then he sends us to be light, and he sends us to be salt in dark, unsavory places. And in those places, we're called to make disciples and followers of a particular rabbi, teacher named Jesus. And in the church world, we call this process discipleship. And discipleship is really simple. I didn't say it was easy, but it's, it's simple terminology. Because to make a disciple is to free those in bondage, 
and show them how to live. That's not easy, but it's simply defined. And to free those in bondage. So this is, this is God's part. Now, we're helpers in this. Um, but freeing those in bondage is salvation. This is the grace through faith and trust in Jesus part. To free those in bondage is to be set free. God does that. Now, God used Moses. God gets the credit. He said, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. I'm going to use this man, but I'm going to bring you out. Make no mistake, Moses is not going to get the glory. I'm going to get the glory. And so, the salvation part is on God. And then show them how to live the path of the way of the teacher, Jesus. Why? Why do we need to be shown the way to live? In order to stay free, this is why as we continue through Exodus, we'll see God giving the law. It's not like we think of law. It is instruction. It is, hey, I just brought you out of 400 years of slavery. Here's a few good things that you might want to do to stay free. It's, it's a constitution. <coughs> Unfortunately, like Moses, many of us take or many of us lack the courage to believe that we're, uh, that we're actually qualified. Uh, we don't believe we're qualified. We, we, often we think we're unqualified. And Moses believed this too. And, and so Moses has these arguments and he's saying, you know, basically, he isn't, he isn't I'm, not, I'm not eloquent in speech. God. So let's, let's bring that forward, 2018. He has a fear of public speaking and he doesn't have a communications degree. I'm not qualified. Okay? Um, he's afraid that people won't believe him. So he has a healthy fear of man. Um, what scripture calls a snare or a trap. But, but God's antidote to all this is what? He tells Moses, Moses goes, I, I'm not eloquent. I'm afraid. What if I tell the people and they don't listen to me? And God's like, well, I'll tell you what, Moses. I'm going to give you more education, some more training, and, and you need to get a seminary. That's not what he tells him. Nothing's wrong with those things. But that's not what Moses tells him. He tells him, I'll be with you. Because you can have all the other stuff. That stuff's great. You can have that and God not be with you. You're not leading anybody anywhere. But the antidote to our self-doubt the antidote to Moses' self-doubt is God with us. God constantly reminds Moses that he'll be with him. And after much wrestling, wrestling, I never can say that word without East Texas coming out. It's wrestling. But I'm telling you, he wrestled with God. Uh, but we read these following words. It says, then the Lord spoke to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Indeed, by a mighty hand, he will let them go. By a mighty hand, he will drive them out of his land. Exodus 6.1. So God's about to display his power. God's about to move. <coughs> and God reiterates the terms of the covenant. He says, I'm the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did 
not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they resided as aliens. I've also heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are holding as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. So therefore, say therefore to the Israelites, I am the Lord. Moses will free you. No, I will free you. From the burdens of the Egyptians and deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you. I, the Lord God, will redeem you. With an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. So with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Now we're going to see the mighty acts of judgment. We're going to see that in a minute because we're going to talk about the plagues. But this outstretched arm part, this outstretched arm part, because God exists out of time and space. And so I fully believe God is speaking the gospel in Exodus. Because at some point, God in flesh is going to stretch his arms out and he's going to save his people. Now, he literally, with an outstretched arm, saves them. He brings them out to Egypt. I get that. He's saying, I'm going to redeem you with an outstretched arm. And I believe that's a foreshadowing of what he's going to do through Christ. And with mighty acts of judgment. And I will take you as my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from the burdens of the Egyptians. I'll bring you into the land I sort of give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So this is the gospel in Exodus. It totally makes sense. Much like the gospels. So again, fast forward, fast forward up to Jesus' time. Rome was occupying Israel in the time of Jesus. And so much like in the time of the Gospels, Moses has this fear, and, and it seems to manifest again in Jesus' day. But the people wouldn't listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their cruel slavery. They wouldn't listen to Moses because of 400 years of oppression. We fast forward to Jesus' time and many, many listened, many wouldn't listen because of being under occupation. It's almost this hopelessness. It's always been this way for so long. I don't know. Will it ever change? And by the way, this is how the world responds now. There's so many people in this world with broken spirits. They've had all they can take. They're hopeless. They're helpless. But it's often at the times when God breaks when God breaks in, the freedom and deliverance and redemption of the people happens. It's when people are at the end of their rope that God breaks in. You, you've heard it before when people hit rock bottom. It's because, man, if we can do it in our own strength, we are so going to try to do that before we come to God, aren't we? I'm going to work this thing. God, I got this. I got it. I mean, if I can't get it, you'll be there, right? But God breaks in to free and deliver us and redeem people that are at the end of the rope. Those who are absolutely helpless. And so God's about to move and he's about to show the Israelites Pharaoh, Egypt, and the whole world who he is. And we hear this theme repeated over and over again in this section. In Exodus 7, verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. In 7:17, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. In chapter 8, verse 10, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord. 
Chapter 8, 18, this is the finger of God. This is when Pharaoh's magicians, you know, they can, they can sort of do everything that Moses is doing up to a certain point. But then when it gets to the gnats, they're like, oh, man, I don't know. This is God's finger. I don't even know how to do this. We haven't seen this. This is the finger of God. Chapter 8, 22, that you may know that I, the Lord, am in this land. 9, verse 4, but the Lord will make a distinction so that nothing shall die of all that belongs to the Israelites. 9, 14, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But this is why I left, let you live, to show you my power and make my name resound through all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people, and I will not let them go. And then in verse 10, 1 through 2, it says, For I have hardened Pharaoh's heart and the heart of his officials, in order that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that they may tell your children and grandchildren, so that you may know that I am the Lord. So God moves in a mighty way, not just so that Israel will know who God is, but that Egypt would know who God is. And in effect, the whole world will know who God is. So when God moves on the behalf of his people, so again, let's bring it forward. If God were to move on behalf of us in this room today, if, if someone had a headache and they walk out of here without a headache and they're like, wow, that's really cool. Great. But God's moving on our behalf here, not just to show us who's, that, that he is God, but to show the world out there that there's God. Not because... Roman prayed for headaches because if, if someone really had a headache and they've tried all the medicine, my wife's been having headaches, and they've tried all the medicine and nothing's working, and then all of a sudden prayer breaks the yoke. Then they share that with someone and they're like, I don't know. I don't know. It's expressing something that only God can do. I've tried everything else and it, it didn't work. Sometimes you take an aspirin for us. Side story. One time a friend of mine, he was like, I had a headache and I, I took an aspirin. I prayed and then I took an aspirin, nothing happened. And, and here's the deal. I took the, I, I, first off I prayed and, and like 10 minutes went by and the headache wasn't gone. And I was like, well, shoot, I guess I'll take an aspirin. My friend was like, man, you normally give an aspirin like half an hour to work and you want God to do it in like 10 minutes. What's up with that? You won't even give God when you give an aspirin? Like, but God moves in mighty ways among us so that we know He's God, but also that the world may know. God's judgment on Egypt is justified because of the evil and the oppression that they've imposed on the Israelites and others. So I think sometimes we don't like this view of God, this God of wrath, this God of judgment, this God that brings the hammer sometimes. And I've, I've, ha I've talked to people, I've sat across some people to talk about it. I don't know if I like the God of the Old Testament, this, this mean God, this God that, man, if people don't comply, it just hammers them. Hey, you realize how long-suffering God's love is here? He's given 400 years. It's quite a long amount of time. And... And I even had someone tell me one time, they're like, I don't know, like, why did God have to, like, 
do all that to the Egyptians? Because that seems harsh. So let's bring it forward again. So let's say I'm at work and I come home and my kids are out playing out in our front yard. And then the neighbor kids are over and they're playing together. And I drive up to my house and I go to get out of my car and I see the neighbor kid with a rock and he is just banging it on the head of my son. Now this didn't really happen. What I'm saying is what if, if I see that happening, am I going to go over to the kid and be like, what are you doing there, son? I mean, really, you ought to stop. I love you. I mean, maybe you're Maybe you've got a bad home life. Would you like? The first thing I'm going to do is protect my child. That means I'm going to pull the kid off. And I'm not really concerned with him at the moment. I'm concerned with my child. The Israelites were the children of God. He'd made covenant with them. It's not that he didn't want the others to know. So same token. If, if neighbor kids are over and they're playing in my yard, I'm more concerned with my children and these neighbor kids than the kids three blocks over that I can't even see because these neighbor kids and my kids are friends. And so if they're friends with my children, I'm concerned with these neighbor kids as well. I'm concerned with what happens to them. When we lived over on 7th, there were all these families, uh, these, these children that would, I would be playing football out in the front yard with my boys and the other kids would come over and they'd start playing football and they just join in and then all of a sudden it's like all these boys would just come out of the woodwork and we'd just be playing football in the front yard. I was concerned about those boys too because I was like, where's dad? And I would never see dad. But if any of those children had turned on my children, Worry about my children. It's the same with God. God is concerned with us. God loves us. And in this, in this story of the Egyptian, of the Egyptians, when God begins to, to get their attention, God's not indifferent to evil. Uh, Pharaoh had set himself up as a god and he, he demanded total obedience and he killed newborn babies and he had oppressed people because of his fear of losing power and his cruelty broke spirits, his cruelty oppressed lives and, and Pharaoh was evil incarnate but listen to me, God's holy incarnate and if God is indifferent to evil then creation would revert back to chaos because you remember it's out of chaos that he brings creation if God's indifferent to evil, then the good world that God created would revert back to the pre-creation state of chaos. It's not just the future of Israel that's at stake, but it's all of creation's at stake in this story. Egypt and its power is about killing and it's about enslaving. God is about freedom and deliverance and redemption. God wants the world to know who he is. And he certainly uses his love to get the job done. But at other times, he uses his judgment if people continue to harden their hearts and become evil and cruel. God's holiness confronts and it destroys evil, and God wants to establish his holiness in his people. So God brings about ten plagues on Egypt, and we're going to talk about these. We're going to look at nine of them. 
and next week we'll look at the tenth plague. But the first plague was he turned the water into blood. So interestingly, the, the Nile River, you know, water represents life, and the Nile was the source of life to Egypt. This is where they got their water. It's also the place where Pharaoh demanded that all the male Hebrew babies be drowned. So this place of life becomes a place of death, and it's the first thing God judges. He goes, then I'll turn your life to death, because I'm the creator. You think you're God, Pharaoh, but I own creation, and I'm the only one that can use creation to get your attention. You have no control over creation. It's mine, lest you forget who the creator is. And he takes a place that's life, that had been turned into a place of death, and he turns it to blood. So that not only is it death for the Hebrews, but now the Egyptians can't use it for life. The second thing is frogs, and then gnats, and then flies, and then the livestock die. And then six is boils, and hail, and locusts, and darkness. Now, just for Jewish information, compare that over to the wrath that's poured out in Revelation, if you want to do a cool word study. Because some of them are even the same. But these plagues are set against Pharaoh's anti-creation activities. Pharaoh's leadership has brought chaos to creation. These plagues are about to bring chaos to his life. They're disastrous and they should leave us gasping. They should strike terror in our hearts. Uh, they're meant to awaken us to the disaster that awaits evil and the judgment that awaits those who oppose God and his created order. These plagues are ultimately for the sake of the entire world, for all of creation. Pharaoh is threatening life and the covenant of God's blessing on the entire world. So Pharaoh must be stopped. And Pharaoh has been sabotaging God's creational work, and it must be stopped. But Pharaoh won't listen to God. Pharaoh's hardened his heart, and God hardens his heart as well. And, and many of us are troubled by the thought of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. But look at it a little bit closer. By turning water into blood and, and the frogs and the gnats and the flies and the livestock dying, these first few things water and frogs and gnats and flies. These are not things that are necessarily going to kill you. They're just pestilence. It's just a, it's just inconvenient. It's not fun. If you've ever been on a picnic and when the flies start coming in or the mosquitoes or whatever, it's just a nuisance. It's not, gonna, it's not death. But it's not fun. It's only then that God brings the livestock and the cattle die, boils, hail, locusts, darkness. We see the grace of God at work here. Pharaoh has five unique opportunities to repent and recognize God's holiness. And even Pharaoh's magicians and advisors think Pharaoh's going off the deep end. The first two plagues, Pharaoh's magicians can replicate, but with the gnats, they can't. They tell Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, but he still won't listen. In fact, in later plagues, especially the hail, many of the Egyptians begin to, to see that God is God, and Pharaoh is not. And they bring their livestock inside and their slaves inside to save them. 
the advisors begin to beg Pharaoh to listen to Moses. And here's where we see Pharaoh harden his heart to the point of no return. Because now Pharaoh's hardening his heart and it just becomes stubborn arrogance against the conviction of God. His evil's turned to, to arrogant defiance and now he won't be swayed. And this is where God steps in and begins to use Pharaoh's evil for his own purposes. God will now begin to turn evil on its head. God knew Pharaoh wouldn't relent, so he hardens his heart even more in order that God's will and his purpose will be fulfilled. These plagues show us that creation is under God's control. You can do a lot to wreck the world. We can do a lot to bring chaos, but creation is under God's control. God uses creation to deliver his own people. And with the plagues, we see how it's used to destroy his enemy. These plagues prove that only God could use creation to destroy and to save. Because it's death to the Egyptians, but it's life and freedom for God's children. Because if you also notice in these plagues, who's he protecting? He's pouring wrath out on all of Egypt, but then none of these things are hitting God's children. God's showing a distinction. He's showing, here's life, walk in this. Here's death, you can be over here. But we see the grace of God in those things. God will begin to turn evil on its head. And, and these plagues destroyed life. But there's also grace because after each plague, there's also, they're, they're removed. God doesn't leave them. Indefinitely. The plagues are poured out, but then the plagues are when Pharaoh goes, okay, reverse it, Moses, and then it's taken away. So we see, we see God pour it out and he takes it away. And we know that all of that rests in God's hands. And the purpose of the plagues is so the world may know who God is and that he restores creation to its proper order. God rules creation. He has control over all the elements of the world. He alone redeems and will destroy evil. And we see this again in Jesus. He has command over creation. When Jesus comes, he walks on the water. He commands storms to cease. He provides bread and fish to crowds. And he makes fig trees wither and restores life. And he brings healing. Christ alone has power over in Jesus, we see the God of the Hebrew Scriptures commanding the created order of the purpose for the purpose of blessing the world. The Apostle Paul wrote about this in Romans 18, 15 through 24. He said, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it. And hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage and decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, not only with creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies, for in hope 
we were saved. The plagues remind us of who God is. Creator and Lord of creation. A God who desires, first off, redemption, deliverance, and salvation for his people. He's about to bring his people out of slavery. This is his desire. And also a God who rights all wrongs and will ultimately do away with evil. And so for us, our next step should be to recognize and to worship this God with reverence and awe. This God of creation. 